Section 32 of History of Egypt, Chaldea, Syria, Babylonia, and Assyria, Volume 3, by Gaston Maspero. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter 3. Chaldean Civilization, Part 5. Yet in spite of their seemingly arbitrary character, this mass of strokes had its source in actual hieroglyphics. As in the origin of the Egyptian script, the earliest writers had begun by drawing on stone or clay the outline of the object of which they desired to convey the idea. But whereas in Egypt the artistic temperament of the race, and the increasing skill of the sculptors, had by decrees brought the drawing of each sign to such perfection that it became a miniature portrait of the being or object to be reproduced, in Chaldea, on the contrary, the signs became degraded from their original forms on account of the difficulty experienced in copying them with the stylus on the clay tablets. They lost their original vertical position, and were placed horizontally, retaining finally but the very faintest resemblance to the original model. For instance, the Chaldean conception of the sky was that of a vault divided into eight segments by diameters running from the four cardinal points, and from their principal subdivisions. The external circle was soon omitted, the transverse line alone remaining, which again was simplified into a kind of irregular cross. The figure of a man standing, indicated by the lines resembling his contour, was placed on its side, and reduced little by little till it came to be merely a series of ill-balanced lines. We may still recognize in it the five fingers and palm of a human hand, but who would guess at the first glance that one of them stands for the foot which the scribes strove to place beside each character the special hieroglyph from which it had been derived? Several fragments of these still exist, a study of which seems to show that the Assyrian scribes of a more recent period were at times as much puzzled as we are ourselves when they strove to get at the principles of their own script. They had come to look on it as nothing more than a system of arbitrary combinations, whose original form had passed all the more readily into oblivion, because it had been borrowed from a foreign race, who, as far as they were concerned, had ceased to have a separate existence. The script had been invented by the Sumerians in the very earliest times, and even they may have brought it in an elemental condition from their distant fatherland. The first articulate sounds which, being attached to the hieroglyphs, gave to each an unalterable pronunciation, were words in the Sumerian tongue, Subsequently, when the natural progress of human thought led the Chaldeans to replace, as in Egypt, the majority of the signs representing ideas by those representing sounds, the syllabic values which were developed side by side with the ideographic values were purely Sumerian. One symbol, throughout all its forms, designates in the first place the sky, then the god of the sky, and finally the concept of divinity in general. In its first two senses it is read Anna, but in the last it becomes dingir, dimir, and though it never lost its double force, it was soon separated from the ideas which it evoked, to be used merely to denote all the syllable an wherever it occurred, even in cases where it had no connection with the sky or heavenly things. The same process was applied to other signs with similar results. After having merely denoted ideas, they came to stand for the sounds corresponding to them, and then passed on to be mere syllables, complex syllables in which several consonants may be distinguished, or simple syllables composed of only one consonant and one vowel, or vice versa. The Egyptians had carried this system still further, and in many cases had kept only one part of the syllable, namely, a mute consonant, 
they detached, for example, the final U from Pu and Bu, and gave only the values B and P to the human leg J and the Mat Q. The peoples of the Euphrates stopped halfway, and admitted actual letters for the vowel sounds A, I, and U only. Their system remained a syllabary interspaced with ideograms, but excluded an alphabet. It was eminently wanting in simplicity, but taken as a whole, it would not have presented as many difficulties as the script of the Egyptians, had it not been forced, at a very early period, to adapt itself to the exigencies of a language for which it had not been made. When it came to be appropriated by the Semites, the ideographs, which up till then had been read in Sumerian, did not lose the sounds which they possessed in that tongue, but borrowed others from the new language. For example, God was called Ilu, and Heaven called Shami. When encountered in inscriptions by the Semites, were read Ilu when the context showed the sense to be God, and Shami when the character evidently meant Heaven. They added these two vocables to the preceding Ana, An, Dinger, Dimmer, but they did not stop there. They confounded the picture of the star with that of the sky, and sometimes attributed to it the pronunciation Kakabu, and the meaning of star. The same process was applied to all the groups, and the Semitic values being added to the Sumerian, the scribes soon found themselves in possession of a double set of syllables, both simple and compound. This multiplicity of sounds, this polyphonous character attached to their signs, became a cause of embarrassment even to them. For instance, one symbol, when found in the body of a word, stood for the syllables high or hot, mid, mit, till, or ziz, as an ideogram, it was used for a score of different concepts, that of lord or master, inu, bilu, that of blood, damu, for a corpse, pagru, shalamtu, for the feeble or oppressed, katu, nagpu, as the hollow and the spring, nakbu, for the state of old age, labaru, of dying, matu, of killing, mitu, of opening, pitu, besides other meanings. Several phonetic complements were added to it. It was preceded by ideograms which determined the sense in which it was to be read, but which, like the Egyptian determinatives, were not pronounced, and in this manner they succeeded in limiting the number of mistakes which it was possible to make. With a final symbol it would always mean Bilu, the master, but with an initial symbol it denoted the gods Bel or Ea. With a symbol which indicated a man it would be the corpse, Pagru and Shalamtu. With the symbol prefixed, it meant matanu, the plague or death, and so on. In spite of these restrictions and explanations, the obscurity of the meaning was so great that in many cases the scribes ran the risk of being unable to make out certain words and understand certain passages. Many of the values occurred but rarely and remained unknown to those who did not take the trouble to make a careful study of the syllabary in its history. It became necessary to draw up tables for their use, in which all the signs were classified and arranged, with their meanings and phonetic transcriptions. These signs occupied one column, and in three or four corresponding columns would be found first, the name assigned to it, secondly, the spelling, in syllables, of the phonetic values which the signs expressed, thirdly, the Sumerian and Assyrian words which they served to render, and sometimes glosses which completed the explanation. Even this is far from exhausting the matter, Several of these dictionaries went back to a very early date, and tradition ascribes to Sargon of Agade the merit of having them drawn up, or of having collected them in his palace. 
the number of them naturally increased in the course of centuries. In the later times of the Assyrian Empire they were so numerous as to form nearly one-fourth of the works in the library at Nineveh under Assurbanipal. Other tablets contained dictionaries of archaic or obsolete terms, grammatical paradigms, extracts from law or ancient hymns analyzed sentence by sentence, and often word by word, interlinear glosses, collections of Sumerian formulas translated into Semitic speech, a child's guide, in fact, which the savants of those times consulted with as much advantage as those of our own day have done, and which must have saved them from many a blunder. When once accustomed to the difficulties and intricacies of their calling, the scribes were never at a standstill. The stylus was plied in Chaldea no less assiduously than was the calamus in Egypt, and the indestructible clay, which the Chaldeans were as a rule content to use, proved a better medium in the long run than the more refined material employed by their rivals. The baked or merely dried clay tablets have withstood the assaults of time in surprising quantities, while the majority of papyri have disappeared without leaving a trace behind. If at Babylon we rarely meet with those representations, which we find everywhere in the tombs of Saqqara or Giza, of the people themselves and their families, their occupations, amusements, and daily intercourse, we possess, on the other hand, that of which the ruins of Memphis have furnished us but scanty instances up to the present time, namely, judicial documents, regulating the mutual relations of the people, and conferring a legal sanction on the various events of their lives. Whether it were a question of buying lands or contracting a marriage, of a loan on interest or the sale of slaves, the scribe was called in with his soft tablets to engross the necessary agreement. In this he would insert as many details as possible, the day of the month, the year of the reigning sovereign, and at times, to be still more precise, an allusion to some important event which had just taken place, and a memorial of which was inserted in official annals, such as the taking of a town, the defeat of a neighboring king, the dedication of a temple, the building of a wall or fortress, the opening of a canal, or the ravages of an inundation. The names of the witnesses and magistrates before whom the act was confirmed were also added to those of the contracting parties. The method of sanctioning it was curious. An indentation was made with a fingernail on one of the sides of the tablet, and this mark, followed or preceded by the mention of a name, Nail of Zabudamik, Nail of Abzi, took the place of our more or less complicated sign manuals. In later times, only the buyer and witnesses approved by a nail mark, while the seller appended his seal, an inscription incised above the impress indicating the position of the signatory. Every one of any importance possessed a seal, which he wore attached to his wrist or hung round his neck by a cord. He scarcely ever allowed it to be separated from his person during his lifetime, and after death it was placed with him in the tomb in order to prevent any improper use being made of it. It was usually a cylinder, sometimes a truncated cone with a convex base, either of marble, red or green jasper, agate, cornelian, onyx or rock crystal, but rarely of metal. Engraved upon it in intaglio was an emblem or subject chosen by the owner, such as a single figure of a god or goddess, an act of adoration, a sacrifice, or an episode in the story of Gilgamesh, followed sometimes by the inscription of a name and title. The cylinder was rolled, or in the case of the cone, merely pressed on the clay, in the space reserved for it. 
in several localities the contracting parties had recourse to a very ingenious procedure to prevent the agreements being altered or added to by unscrupulous persons. When the document had been impressed on the tablet, it was enveloped in a second coating of clay, upon which an exact copy of the original was made, the latter thus becoming inaccessible to forgers. If by chance, in course of time, any disagreement should take place, and an alteration of the visible text should be suspected, the outer envelope was broken in the presence of witnesses, and a comparison was made to see if the exterior corresponded exactly with the interior version. Families thus had their private archives, to which additions were rapidly made by every generation. Every household thus accumulated not only the evidences of its own history, but, to some extent, that of other families with whom they had formed alliances, or had business or friendly relations. End of section 32. Read by Professor Heather and By. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.